0: Well, I went to Alabama this uh, late Thursday and drove my wife home, uh, brought her and the dog back to Texas, so rescued her from all those grandchildren. She seemed to really appreciate it. It's uh, not really. It's, uh, <laughs> it's 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 good to get her back. We, we talk about the providence of God and how he's always watching over us. We stop for some gasoline and Birmingham, and and, um, we're trying to get back on the freeway, and we had a left turn era, and I started turning left, and somebody uh, just ran a red light about 50 miles an hour, and I had this picture of her coming right into the side where my wife was seated, but at the last moment, she swerved and hit the back of our um, vehicle. Nobody was injured, uh, thankfully, and after an hour and a half of Two hours of sitting with our flasher going and blocking the intersection, a policeman came to write up the report. It was amazing. When we first had the accident, the uh, person who was driving the other car who had run the red light said, oh, I know I'm going to lose my insurance and all this, uh, really concerned about her insurance. And then when the policeman came, she said, uh, he hit me. And. Uh, <laughs> I, I I guess there is a reason for lawyers after all, right, lawyers? Uh, you know, it's amazing how people can change their stories so quickly. So I'm, uh, I just, you'd be proud of me. I just walked away and said, let her finish her story. And when she finishes, I'll tell you what really happened. And uh, so uh, that's the way we did it. And we let the insurance company work it out. But I, I just wanted to thank you for your prayers. And we ought to pray for each other. We all, um. Subject to so many things in a world like ours, and we ought, we ought never drive uh, 10 miles without thanking God for His watching over us. It's just uh, wonderful to know that we live in His marvelous uh, protective care. Now, I'm sure you like those little letters from God as much as I. If you recall reading them, you remember one little boy, uh, one little girl, rather, said to God, and please send, it, send Dennis Clark to another camp this summer. And then the classic, the one we all remember, is, um, Dear God, thank you for my baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. And then, then one that I thought about in conjunction with this sermon was, um, Dear God, my brother told me all about being born, but somehow it just doesn't sound right. (laughs) Well, this 12th chapter I wanted to preach right after Christmas because it's kind of a nativity story too, but it sounds very different from the ones we read in Matthew and, and in Luke and even the one Paul shares with us. For the 12th chapter is one of those great portents or signs, vision, which the Lord gave to John who recorded for us uh, the revelation. I want us to look at the main points in this 12th chapter and it will probably help you if you keep that Bible open as we walk through it so that as Christians we can claim all of our heritage. For too long, the, the the book of Revelation has been the closed book, and people have, have made an attempt to understand it and gotten bogged down on the symbols and have said, oh, well, I'll just write that one off, but it's ours, and it has a great message, and I'm hoping during the, practically everywhere uh, depicting this, this woman in the sun. Uh, Jane and I have one of those, a copy of one of those Madonnas and a painting in the parsonage that has been in her family for many years. Those of you who have been in our home have heard me tell the story how one of Jean's ancestors uh, got an artist to make this copy for her when she was visiting the Louvre in Paris. Many, many, many years later, Jean and I, who had inherited that Madonna, uh, went to uh, the Louvre when we were in Paris to see the original Madonna. We searched all over but were very disappointed to discover it was not there. And So we went away thinking, well it's a nice family story but not really based on fact. And then several years later I was in Madrid and took advantage of the opportunity to go to their great museum of art and, and to see uh, to go into the Prado and, and, and see the great paintings there. And as I, I turned a corner in that underground museum, I turned a corner and suddenly there filling the entire side of a wall was our Madonna. I can't tell you how thrilled I was. Turns out it wasn't a French painter at all, it was a Spanish painter. Murillo had done that particular Madonna and it had been on loan. To the Louvre at the time, Jean's ancestor had it copied, and so we felt so good about our family. They had told the truth, and we had a chance to we had a chance to see one of these glorious Madonnas and a really gifted artist as he tried to capture that that uh, supernatural quality of Mary. Actually, we're we're closer to the truth of this vision if we do not limit this to a human uh, woman only. But let's think in terms of the Messianic community, the, the community of the Messiah, Israel, that became the church, old Israel, that became the new Israel. It is the Messianic uh, community that brings forth the Messiah. And then right after this scene opens with, uh, with this heavenly Mary, then we see another person comes on the picture uh, who is the great dragon. The, ...the great dragon, later identified as that old adversary, Satan. The word Satan means adversary. The old adversary, the devil, who, who makes his appearance early on in the book of Genesis. Now he makes his appearance, and, and he is, is grotesque. You know, we, we Westerners think these images throw us. John is using pictorial language. He is speaking in code so that only the initiated will understand his letter. And many times we don't take the trouble of of deciphering the code. He he says this uh, dragon, uh, who is red by the way, the red dragon, because the the scripture says, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Uh, Scarlet epitomizes evil in this instance. Uh, Hawthorne used that scarlet the scarlet letter and so the 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 dragon is the epitome of evil and and he has ten horns seven heads and all those diadems on his head. Now we learn early on in the Old Testament when we come to the horn on the altar that the horn stands for power. It helps immensely to translate that instead of ten horns to say that this dragon is very powerful. That's what the symbolism means. He is very powerful. We, we know that the, the seven heads, we aren't quite as clear about those, but probably means he is very cunning and very difficult to destroy. And, and the diadems are very plain, which is an indication that this evil has dominion over a number of kingdoms in this world. Certainly none over the kingdom of God, but he does reign supreme over the kingdoms, some of the kingdoms of this world. Moreover, this dragon is anxious to destroy the male child, the woman is, is, is about to give birth to. And, and he's eager to, to destroy him even before he's aware of his existence. Now, who is the agent of the dragon in in uh, the Bible? Well, Matthew 2 tells us that. Herod is the agent of the dragon. Because he tells the wise men, when you have found this baby, you come and tell me where he is that I may go and worship him. But the angels warned the wise men, and, and so they went back another way. They never told Herod where the baby Jesus was. And indeed, Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt that Herod might not kill the Messiah. So here again, the the dragon's agent was Herod. He, He wants to destroy this male child. But God caught him up, or the Bible says, God snatched him up. Now here it's confusing because John omits the earthly life of Jesus. That isn't his purpose here. His purpose is to to point us to the exalted Christ. So he doesn't talk about the 33 years Jesus walked the earth. He simply says the Messianic community gave us that male child and then he points toward his ascension. God snatched him up into heaven. It's interesting that the same word that is used here for caught up to God is the same word that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians when he says the Christians are going to be caught up to God. So the the idea of being caught up to God is a a theme that goes through the scriptures. We're going to be caught up to God in the same way that Jesus, uh, the Messiah, was caught up to God in his ascension. So failing to destroy the Messiah... The dragon then turns his attention uh, to the uh, offspring of the messianic community and, and that is the church. We can just see how the inspiration of God is helping John come up with some comforting words to the Christians in Asia Minor. They are suffering terrible persecutions and so John is, is, is a is is through the inspiration of the Spirit, uh, being given a privilege of looking into heaven and of of sharing that vision with the Christians so they can understand what's happening to them. But not only does it help the Christians then understand what's happening to them, but it also helps us understand uh, what's happening to Christians in every generation. Look at it carefully now from verse 7 through 12 when he talks about the two-stage drama. That's another thing confusing about apocalyptic literature like the Revelation. Not only does it interpret the present in the light of the future, and we're accustomed to interpreting the present in the light of the past. That's confusing enough. But sometimes it's two-stage drama, and you have a good case here in the 12th chapter. What am I saying? I'm saying that what happens on earth has an impact on what's happening in heaven. And what happened in heaven has a reaction on earth so that we have cosmic involvement here. Let me put it this way. Jesus didn't just die on a lonely cross outside the city wall of Jerusalem. The death of Jesus Christ has cosmic implications. Paul talked about under the earth and in heaven and all over the universe being impacted by the death of Jesus. The gospel writers tried to get at it when they said the sun was darkened at his death and the veil in the temple was mysteriously torn and there were earthquakes and and graves were open and all kinds of supernatural things happened here. But in the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and the grave, in the victory of Jesus Christ, something is the power of God is released that sweeps throughout the entire world. So John tells us because of the victory of Jesus, a war breaks out in heaven. Why in heaven? Because Isaiah 14 tells us that before Satan was an adversary, he was an angel of light. Lucifer, the son of the morning star, a powerful angel. God created everything good. But Lucifer, thinking he could be better than God, let his pride get the best of him. And so he is the fallen angel and he had won a lot of support among the angelic chorus sizable minority. The Bible tells us one-third had been swept down by this uh, dragon, so he has a sizable minority of people uh, supporting him. And so when Jesus wins his victory, however, it turns loose a war in heaven, John says. And Michael and his angels fight against uh, Satan and, and his cohorts. And Michael and the good angels win, and he is thrown out of heaven. That's good news for heaven because now God's will is perfectly done in heaven. It has been cleansed of evil. It is now completely heaven. But it's bad news for the earth because he has come down into this world fiercely angry. He is defeated. He knows his time is short. And so he makes war on the offspring of this Messiah with a particular vengeance. Now interestingly John tells us that well, one group has already overcome Satan and the dragon. And these are the martyrs. Look at it in your scripture They He says the, the martyrs have overcome. How have they overcome the great accuser? They have overcome not through their own strength, not through anything that they have done, not by living a clean, moral life and doing the right thing. They have overcome through the blood of the Lamb. They have been beneath the cleansing flow of the blood of Jesus Christ, and they have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Now, how can anyone be accused of anything when they are absolutely free? They are under the blood. They they cannot be condemned. They cannot be accused. They have overcome the accuser. Paul says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. For those who by faith have accepted his atoning atoning sacrifice, there is no accusation. They They have overcome through the blood of the Lamb. More than that, he says, you have to overcome as well through the word of your testimony. You see, it is important that we acknowledge our Redeemer. Jesus has redeemed us from our sins. Have we acknowledged Jesus? Jesus said, if if you don't acknowledge me before this sinful and adulterous generation, I won't acknowledge you on the day you stand before the judgment throne. It's important that we claim our Redeemer. And do you know that's difficult? Even in our land of, of freedom, of wonderful country like ours, it's difficult. I read all that hullabaloo a few weeks ago when, when the candidates, some of the candidates for president asked uh, which writer or philosopher had the most impact on your life? And, and one of the candidates answered, Jesus Christ. He changed my life. He changed my heart. Consequently, he changed my life. He's had more impact on me than any other philosopher, writer, or thinker. And you remember there was almost a scream across this country. We, we couldn't believe it, that someone out of the church, someone in a public place would say Jesus. I mean, you, you say that in church for heaven's sake. You don't, you don't go public with your religion. You don't wear it on your sleeve for heaven's sake. You talk about Jesus in church. And, and here is this, gentle Jesus who says if you don't acknowledge me I won't acknowledge you so it's not against the law to acknowledge Jesus in our country thank God for that it's just not the kosher kind of thing to do so Christians have to think about overcoming first by the blood of the lamb as the martyrs did and through the word of their testimony our God expects us to testify to his greatness, and to his glory." So the dragon cannot destroy the, the godchild, cannot destroy the messianic community, so he makes war on the, um, on the offspring, and that's us. And that, that's what helped the Christians understand what was going on. Uh, God delivered the woman, gave her the wings of an eagle. This is an image all the way through the Old Testament that God carried his people as on eagles' wings Carried her to the wilderness, which was not a bad place—a place prepared by God, where she could be nurtured and cared for by God. The the people of Israel looked back on the wilderness experience as a great time when they felt especially close to God. That's the place—the wilderness where uh, the heavenly Mary had gone. Now, quickly, let's look at two or three things we can take out of this chapter and take home for us and claim this chapter as ours forever. What's it really talking about? What's it saying here? First of all, that the the uh, God-child cannot be destroyed. This is uh, God Almighty in Jesus Christ, and the God-child is safe forevermore. It helps us understand that the only way uh, the dragon can injure the Christ is by injuring the church. And, and therefore, persecution of the church is not of a human origin. Not just of a human origin. Here the Apostle Paul talks about we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There's an evil force in the world that makes people come against the church. And, and, and here we understand that it's not just of a human origin. We we have long ago realized that if we want to hurt Jesus, then do something bad to the church. You can't separate the church and Jesus. When Saul of Tarsus was on his way to Damascus and knocked down and a, a voice spoke to him out of that blinding light, the voice of Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul was the most surprised man on the planet. He had been persecuting the church for heaven's sake. And now Jesus said, Saul, you're persecuting me. If you want to hurt me, you hurt my church. And so unable to destroy the God child, Jesus, the dragon, the adversary, hurts the church. Second point, God takes care of his people. The true church is always under the protection of of God. That's why you and I, in the words of that beautiful solo, should never be discouraged. God has his eye on that sparrow. God has his eye on us. God is going to take care of us. It's easy to get discouraged. When you look at our culture, you watch television for heaven's sake. You, you see something and you think, I didn't think I'd ever live long enough to hear that in public. I, what, what is happening to our culture? We've We've lost our moral moorings. What, what, it is so easy to get discouraged. I, I, I think the, the school shootings have just taken the heart out of us. We, we have all been broken by these things. I, I read about the Columbine, the, the Colorado shootings the other day, how those troubled young people had come to school day after day wearing these weird uh, floor-length black trench coats, and nobody had said a word. But somebody remarked, if they had stood in the hall and handed out Bibles, they would have been taken to the office of the principal immediately, and a thorough investigation would have been done. It's easy in our culture to get discouraged. It's easy for Christians to say, oh, oh, what's the use? We're on the losing side here, but look at our scripture. God always takes care of his people. The true church is always under his protection. What happens? A dragon sent a flood against the messianic community and the earth opened up and swallowed that flood. All of nature is on the side of Jesus Christ. Do you remember that scene in Judges when Deborah, who is the leader of Israel, a woman, Deborah is leading Israel and she goes out to lead the people in battle against the Canaanites, Sisera and the Canaanites. And they went a great victory over the Canaanites. In retrospect, as Deborah sings about that victory, she rightly says, the stars in heaven fought against Sisera. When you stand with Jesus Christ and you put your faith and trust in him, all the power of the universe is on your side. And that power can never be defeated. And then in the third place, evil is strong, but the days of evil are numbered because Jesus has triumphed. Jesus has triumphed uh, completely. And we ought to see that if we're a student of history. We should have caught it in the Christmas story because after Mary and Joseph are in Egypt, where Jesus is safe, the angel comes after Herod dies, and the angel says, you can go home now. Those who sought the young child's life are dead. You can look at the Middle Ages. You can look at the 20th century. You can look at any century since his birth and say they are dead who sought the young child's life. Jesus has triumphed. The most recent example is an atheistic state, the leader of which said, we will bury you and by implication and your God. No Christianity allowed here, no belief. Jane and I had the privilege of being in Red Square where they had all those military parades on the first Easter morning after the fall of communism. And we looked around that city and I saw banners as big as the side of this wall, draped over all these old buildings, and the banners read, Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. There is no defeating him. There is no, we, we laugh, the churches in Russia are packed. They have more people in church than they have had in generations two generations when they weren't even legal or legitimate and the churches are packed. I tell you you cannot keep him down. He specializes in resurrection. Then and now someone with exquisite good taste created a sign and put it over that um, throne in Westminster Abbey. The monarch to be sits on that throne and there they are crowned king or queen of Britain over that throne there is a sign that comes from this 11th chapter which is the prelude to the 12th the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever and ever Jesus has triumphed Jesus shall reign where 'er the sun does its successive journeys reign, run? Jesus, at the name above every name, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Thanks be to God. Amen. <laughs> I want us to claim the great uh, promises in this book, all the book, not just a part of it, all the book. And maybe today the Lord has impressed one of these promises on your heart and you're saying, I want to crown Jesus Christ as the king of my life. If you want to do that, I invite you to come forward during the singing of the hymn. We'll be glad to baptize you and receive you into this family of faith. Or if you're already a Christian, I invite you to come and And let us uh, welcome you into our fellowship as you work out your salvation with us here at the First Methodist Church. Will you come as we stand to sing our closing hymn?